0: This is Straight Ahead with the 606 Club of London and David Lewis.
1: This week, Straight Ahead brought you along with the 606 Club of Chelsea and me, David Lewis. It was a track from Pijan that got us going on the way this week called PJFC, which you'll find on their EP called Sage Secrets. Pijan's unusual name, I know. The lads met whilst studying at the London Conservatoire, the Trinity Laban, And whilst out for a coffee one day, the barista called out, by mistake, the trumpeter's name in the band, Dylan, as Pijan, And that is how they came by their name. Next, we're going over to Manchester-born crooner Alexander Stewart for a track from his latest album, All or Nothing At All, and The Hard Way.
2: Watch out.
3: had to learn the hard way, didn't you? You had to go the whole way, see
4: it through. I could have told you long ago, you didn't know what you were asking for, you wouldn't get what you were bargain for, but it's too late. You had to do it your way Didn't you? Like a gambler on a payday
2: Ain't it true?
3: You should have thought it through Mm -hmm. You never thought that you had paid the cost You didn't know till you had loved and lost And it's too late now You have to learn Oh
1: of the BBC Concert Orchestra, that's a track from Alexander Stewart's critically acclaimed album All or Nothing At All and that was The Hard Way. Our guest on the show this week is pianist, composer and music promoter Alex Webb. Fascinating, fascinating interview, loads of energy which you will hear in the first part of that interview comes along around about 10.30 but first I think we need to introduce some sunshine into the show for this week from a man called Vandele Pereira, along with the Blindfold Test and this is their version of Miss Jurada. Sunshine, Mistuada from Vandelay Pereira. And Farnell Newton has just released his second album on Positone Records. The album is called Rippin' and Running, and from that we're going to listen to The Roots. Barnell Newton, a track from his brand new album, Rippin' and Running*, and we just listened to The Roots. And so did Buddy's bit for the week. So Buddy was in town in Caesars Palace in Las Vegas on some engagements with Tony Bennett. And the band decided to stay over for one further night. The following evening, Caesars Palace opened the doors to a load of celebrities. The band was sounding so good that they just carried on recording. And at 3 a.m. as yeah that's right 3 a.m. as the strip was beginning to wind down and bar down, tenders, dancers and other singers were turning in, the band laid down this version of one of their most requested numbers Channel One Suite and just listen out for the amazing tenor solo from Don Menza, one of the very finest you are ever likely to hear. <laughs> Having lived outside the States for many many years, Don Menza came back to the US and Buddy discovered him and as you heard on that night in 1968 live at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas delivered one of the finest tennis solos that I think you're ever likely to hear Buddy Rich and the channel one suite and so it's time that we introduce alex webb onto the show our guest for this week's show and we're going to start the interview off with a track from one of alex's projects that he created along with david mccormick the vocalist and it is the last bohemians if you want to know what's happening at the six check out the website at 606club.co.uk <laughs>
0: show are always last to leave. The first one in the know and the last one to believe. You had it all, the contacts and the charm, the only one to call, the man with the golden arm. But then one day you look around and everyone is settling down. And you're the last one Boy, we played the game But nothing lasts forever Now no one knows your name And the kids don't care about bumping cool Can't play an even four They don't teach that stuff at school And no one needs you anymore You had it all Measured out in lines Riding high before the fall sharp suits and fine lines Then one day it's in the air It's getting hit to be a square you are the last one here, in some little dive The cat who ran out of love. so
1: Again, on straight head, it's interview time, and this week we've got a man that's uh, dipped his toes into so many areas of the arts industry. Alex Webb. Alex, uh, hello and welcome. Hello, good to see you. Thank you for making the time, and I'm assuming time is something you probably have a a little bit more of than you'd like (laughs) at the present time.
5: I've I've tried. I've tried to be constructive with this time because I think actually it's in some ways it's a gift, Mm -hmm. you know, to suddenly have a bit of time. But um, as the months have rolled by. I've got a bit less productive, to be absolutely frank with you. I started well, um, but now I'm finding I'm getting a bit stir crazy. And I'm sure a lot of people listening would would understand that.
1: Resonates very, very well. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. At the beginning, there was a a certain moment when it was like rabbits in the headlights. Then we all became super productive. And now it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. I just want life again. So yeah, I think we all understand your pain. So let's go back to the early years to start with shall we was music surrounded in your family was it almost an obvious that you were going to become a musician
5: uh, it wasn't obvious but my dad um had a big record collection which a lot of it was classical my folks likes like the, the musicals so we had stuff like uh, ella and frankie and all that kind of end of things and he had like a lot of people of his generation he liked early jazz so he liked Louis armstrong bessie uh, fat swallow was a big favorite of his so i, I grew up with that those those sounds uh, my brother was um much older than me, seven years older than mm-hmm. me, and he was—he was very serious about music, and he founded a band which was very successful in the eighties and nineties called Acoustic Alchemy. Oh, wow. um, yeah. Unfortunately, he, he, yeah, he died young at forty-three. That he was the musician, and in a funny kind of way, that meant that for a large part of my life, I—I I felt I had to go some other way. I was always interested in music. I played the piano. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I always had it going on on the side, but it was a it's sort of, uh, and then and then. Um, I mean, in due course, I'm jumping ahead. Mm. Then, I, I, then I got settled and had kids, and I really needed to bring in a salary. So that was another reason why I ended up doing a lot of things other than music mm. in my life. But it was ne- it never it never went away. you know. And in, and that's uh, in the last sort of, 10, 15 years. It's become, well, it, my main focus again main is where I'm a fully professional musician. Yeah, I have been for some years.
1: So there's no formal music education for yeah. you then in those early
5: years? Well, I did... Um, Go to piano lessons, which my parents forced me to do, <laughs> which I didn't enjoy very much. And except this is the other thing that my dad was a sort of a bit of a pub piano player. I mean, he used to do occasionally as a student for money, and mm-hmm. he was he was a you, you sing it and I'll play it kind of merchant. And when I was about fifteen, he said, "Oh, want you listen to this, and he, he played uh, Honky Tonk Train Blues by Mead Lux Lewis, one of the early Boogie Woogie records, and didn't play it brilliantly, but he played it, and I just thought, wow, so you can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I did, I really." Uh, I, I just wish you'd shown me a few years earlier, I guess, was, I instantly started learning the boogie woogie left hands, you know, and uh, that's really the kind of took off.
1: Mm. So, one of the first jobs I seem to recall you having was in newspapers, is that right?
5: Well, actually, when I left university where I studied politics and history, I went uh, in Manchester, I went straight to work at their jazz venue, The Band on the Wall, which is still going. A very
1: famous venue. And
5: yeah. uh, during. Yeah. And I spent three years uh, working at programming, managing, doing sound, everything. I mean, everyone had to do everything. It was a great education. Of course, I saw a lot of good music. Um, And um, during that time, I was starting to do bits of writing um, for jazz publications and things. So that was something that, that, again, it was just yet another thing I wanted to do. And and, um, I ended up writing somewhat later on in going into the Nineties. I ended up being a features writer for the Independent. I wrote stuff for the Guardian, New Statesman, and of course Straight No Chaser magazine, mm-hmm. um, which was quite a big thing at the time. So um, that, yeah, yet, yet another damn thing. That yeah. <laughs> very much a jack of all trades and master of none, I have to say.
1: All centered around the arts and music. That's a fascinating thing. You never pigeonhole yourself into just one area. It's not like you were a product of a university or conservatoire, came out as a pianist, and that was it. You've encompassed everything, really, haven't you? Seen music from all sides
5: yeah i've I, the only the only bit of the music industry i haven't worked in is a record company um i've been in music publishing live music uh i've, I've been a musician i've um you know i've been a promoter been a pr person uh, whatever i've worked in music radio um, so yeah, I have seen it a long way, a lot of ways around. and that that's um, that's been interesting. I mean, I can't say it hasn't been interesting. Yeah.
1: So from journalism, uh, in which we've just discussed, then that's when you decided to restart the music career and started to refocus. Is it because you were exposed to so much great music? You, it was just whetted your appetite, and you thought, that's what I want to be doing.
5: Well, there was something quite specific um, around at the end of the '90s. I started work for the Music Publishers Association, and uh, that really brought me into contact with lots of um, big cheeses in in pop music and and, uh, and other parts of the music industry. In France, when it was a big music industry gathering and stuff like that, and I, um, I, I, sort of suddenly remembered that I'd always uh, I'd done bits of songwriting. I'd I'd been a you know piano player and stuff, and it was it was about time that I got back into that. It was almost like like like, um, you know, why wasn't I doing this? You know, why wasn't I doing the music? Why was I only stuck in the business end of things, if mm-hmm. you like? Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, it was also through, also to through the fact that at that, that point, my, my you know, we, the kids were getting older and it was a sort of, uh, I suppose it was maybe oh, touch of a midlife crisis thing of sort of, well, what am, what am I actually going to do with that? getting into songwriting and i had this idea of actually just trying to be a quality pop songwriter and 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 i ended up actually writing stuff for a place called rollover studios in north london Mm -hmm. which used to um uh, demo pop stuff and send it to people like the sugar base i mean it was very very much at that end of things and that was a very interesting experience partly because i realized that if if, you know and a lot of jazz musicians don't get this actually making good pop music is fantastically difficult it's a whole skill set and a passion and a a system of its own and it ain't easy the fact that pop music is often musically simpler than other forms is neither here nor there simplicity is very difficult yeah
1: it surprises me I, i'd always because it's kind of like a you know often a 4-4 four, four kind of format you think it's just going to be easy but i guess that's the art of it people that are behind it and make right good pop music make it sound easy when you're good at your job that's part of the knack isn't it
5: well there's that Yeah, yeah <laughs> There's, there's always that with, with the arts the, the, you, you've got to make it look and sound easy mm. you, know, have, you know but it's particularly that thing about sorry go on
1: no I was going to say I'll have a renewed uh, ease when I listen to it now I won't <laughs> box all it quite as much because clearly it is a skill yeah. as you say as you say
5: yeah it's it's um, uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, most pop music, pop music is, is dire. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, but, but the point is, that if you're trying to do something, it, 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 you're trying to do something good in that field, it's mm-hmm. very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. uh, so, that, so that's really interesting. But what then happened was, uh, without going into too much detail, was um, I, um, I was offered a chance. Well, here it is, actually. There was a young woman that was in touch with the Pizza Express Jazz Club under its previous management. So we're talking about the beginning of this century, I guess, or mm. you know, some 15 years ago. And she needed some jazz material because she was going to. Uh, there was that that brief. Ex- you know, it was kind of Jamie Cullum time. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there was an interest in jazz again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, she needed some material, so I was tipped off by this guy to write some stuff for her. Um, and her name was Nadine Shah, who's actually become a very interesting, reputable rock artist in her own right mm-hmm. um, and not a jazz artist at all. But anyway, so I wrote all this stuff. And then Nadine basically, I think she changed her mind and started on the career that she's run so successfully since then. So I had all these tunes and I literally and this is supposed to be the early days of, of relatively early days of the Internet. I thought, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And I sat down and I started Googling, or perhaps it was previous to Google. But anyway, I did internet searches on London jazz vocalists, and I found a few uh, who came up. and I called one of them off the off the bat, from, out of the blue, a woman called Coca Brown, mm-hmm. and we got talking. We had it. We got on well, and I said, "Look, are you interested in seeing some jazz material? I, I knew she did soul and funk, but she had this lovely." sort of voice i thought could be a good jazz voice and miraculously she said, yeah let's give it a go you know completely, <laughs> completely out of the blue you know so i went and met her and we actually um and i borrowed her band and we <laughs> started playing uh, sort of jazz gigs mixers it was a kind of acoustic jazz soul stuff and we did some standards and all that but you know that that really got me going i had to get my, my playing together again and stuff i'm always be grateful to coco who's a fantastic singer by the way mm. and um strangely if not a stage, not a stage name Really, actually called Cocoa Brown. That right. A black woman called Cocoa Brown. Yeah, yeah.
1: Do you still work with her now?
5: Um, and. Um- uh, no, but we're, we're in touch, I mean, intermittently. But she's still really worth checking out. A great, uh, great singer and how own
1: way. I mean, you're a prodigious songwriter and, and an ideas man. When We'll come on to your projects, which are numerous a little later on. But, I mean, a lot of your songs, I know, have been recorded by China Moses and uh, Leanne Cowell, Joe Harrop, mm. who co-presents a show mm. with me once a month. Your, I mean, your material that you write is performed by many. Is that Do you write for a particular artist or do you write a song and then think that would fit that artist? artist
5: um i've done both uh, i had a period of writing songs for uh, alexander stewart uh, we were his md uh, for some years and uh, so i was writing songs from a male perspective i've tended to write more for women and that, that makes quite a difference actually does you it? know it's i mean it's, it's unfortunately it's a, yeah it does it's it's a sexist world but uh, heartbreak songs tend to work better for a woman. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's we expect that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and, you know, the, the, the male, male songs, you've got a slightly different angle on things. Um, and uh, that's good discipline to think about that. And, of course, some songs will work for anyone. I mean, you know, a song like Yesterday, of course, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You know? But um, it, it's uh, so, yeah. Um, so sometimes I've very much thought, well, what would suit this person? I think about their range, you know. I mean, Joe has, uh, for example, a fantastic singer, one of the best singers I've ever worked with. Um, now, I happen to like, Evelyn, she does, but I happen to like her the lower part of her range. So someone mm. actually pitch a song. I'll think about that. What's going to bring out those...
1: Those earthy notes and...
5: Velvety sounds. Yeah. And down, you know, yeah. So, something like uh, China Moses, what she's got is a real sass about her, very, very much that sort of African-American kind of thing. So, you know, she can do a song like... Um, yeah, you know, bad girls don't you know, don't get the blues or it's called. Um, no bad girls need love too, that's my son. <laughs> um and uh, you know, with all the humour in it. She she can pull that off, you know, so it's, it's things like So sometimes it's a it's a personality thing as well. Sure.
1: Are you a, a lyrics and music man? So you would you would write the lyrics for uh, yeah, a singer I mean, as well? I mean, I-
5: yeah, I would. I've done it. Sometimes uh, I've written to music and sometimes I have i think I've probably written to lyrics. I've te- when, I've, when I've collaborated, which is quite a few occasions, I've tended to do people who do bits of both. Mm-hmm. So it's often, you know, someone comes with half a song with maybe a bit of melody and a bit oh, of lyrics and you're, then you, you've got to finish the melody, finish the lyrics. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, it can work all ways around, but it, I don't know what I'm stronger at. Sometimes I think I'm a better lyricist than a music person. Um, but on the other hand, people can be very proprietary about what words they say in a song understandably mm. so sometimes you give someone a lyric and they just they just don't like what from you know and so uh, it doesn't work on them even if they like the music mm. so that that so that lyric thing can be quite awkward because you've got to you've got to think about what are they what are they like i mean some you know i said that thing about the heartbreak songs you know which are very much used to the sort of staple of people like billy holiday mm. but i mean actually and i think quite rightly there's some few some female singers who are fed up with doing that stuff because it's sort of is, it speaks of submission do you know mm. what i mean so mm-hmm. sometimes you, you've got to think actually you know, what's, what's a, something a bit more uh, liberated a bit more positive stronger yeah that you can do you know
1: and before we start uh, moving through your career and looking at some of the theatre and club productions you've done. You've had a spell working mm-hmm. for the BBC as well, haven't you, At Radio 3? And you've had quite a long spell there, haven't yeah. you? What, what did that entail then?
5: I Actually, in the 90s, I worked for the BBC World Service uh, as an audience researcher. That was when I was less involved in the music scene. That was pretty interesting. Um, and then then I uh, came out of that did worked in music publishing. It went back into... Radio Three, and um, that was actually I was in charge of events, and at the time Radio Three had a lot of money and it was doing lots lots of stuff. So uh, it obviously it runs things like the Prom season, everyone knows at the Albert Hall, but mm. it was running with Radio Two. It was running the BBC Jazz Awards, which unfortunately is gone. And it was running a uh, thing called the Awards for World Music, which has unfortunately gone as well. Um, and there were lots of other odds and ends. We were, we were a, a media partner of WOMAD and there was stuff like that. So I basically looked after a lot of those relationships and those uh, events and stuff. And that was it was it was an amazing job, actually. And I really um, it was a great education musically on all, all fronts because the people who work for Radio 3 are terrifyingly <laughs> well informed about everything, you know, um, and um you know, and I'm, I was always interested in world music, and uh, particularly on the Brazilian Latin side. But all of that stuff was very educational. Registry Three, then, and, and still has interesting jazz output. There isn't mm. a lot of it, but it's always good quality. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was a great time. I did five, five years, but uh, and then I then I ended up working at the Barbican Centre, uh, which is you know another great thing. The, the things you've sort had of a fascinating
1: life. You really have. Just, the more we talk, the, the more been, you've done. I've been very lucky, yeah. What was your introduction to the BBC then? How did that come about?
5: Um, well, I, I uh, the first job at the World Service was a very specialised thing. I, I happened to have done a second degree uh, with uh, survey research involved in it. So it's audience research, you know, it was a technical job, if you like. I happened to involve in some interesting travel, but it was a lot of it was number crunching on computers. So mm-hmm. that was very much just something I answered and had and I had the right qualifications. When I came back into Radio 3, I... Um, I, I think that, again, you know, I answered a job ad. I mean, it was all very formal. I just, um, I suppose what I'd managed to do is, is uh, represent all the, the ways I'd been involved in um, music and, and probably my previous career at the BBC didn't do any harm. And that, you know, that they, they took me on. <clears throat> I do remember this, though, that I already knew the late John Cumming of, of Sirius, of Sirius and London Jazz Festival. I knew him because of the Band to the Wall in Manchester and I put him down as a reference and I happened to know that they did check him out Right, and he said, you should employ this guy. Yeah. So I, I, I'll always be grateful to, to lovely John Cumming who much missed, you know, yes. died earlier this year.
1: Recently passed away, yeah. And I mentioned yeah. your theatre and spoken word productions. Now, for instance, I know you've done a show called Strayhorn the Songwriter which also that was in new york wasn't it so you've had a spell of living in, in here we go again another another world of your life um yeah so talk uh, to us that about was actually, new york that, style. That,
5: that, well, well okay let's just get these in the right order uh, strayhorn the songwriter was something in fact that was the first sort of words of music production i did and it was a one-nighter for the london jazz festival in 2010 a long time ago now mm-hmm. and then um uh, uh, we revived it, and China Moses was involved in that, and then we revived it in 2015, and we had three great singers, which is Sandra Nkake, who's from Paris, who I, I work with whenever I can, which is not often, um, David, the great David McCalmont, of course, mm. and uh, an American guy called Alan Harris, um, and who, who plays here a bit. And we did that show in the London Jazz Festival in 2015. So that's, and that was, that, that was a big thing that involved, uh, uh, I did it with Frank Griffith, the American arranger, and... Yeah, we, and we know
1: Frank, we've had him on the show,
5: yeah. I had... I, yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you've heard all these jokes, then. So, um, <laughs> not all enough. Yeah, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm sure. but anyway, so that was partly an arranging job, and I really had to really get into. Um, you know, just trying to understand some of the things about how s- Strayhorn wrote and arranged, which is very complex matter. You know, I mean, I'm s- I think I got away with it, but you know, that was a testing thing. But the, the show that went to New York was, was my second words of music production, which, which is, um, Cafe Society Swing. And that, that was again, a one-off for the London Jazz Festival in 2011. China and Gwyneth uh, Herbert is an- another very interesting artist. And Alexander Stewart were involved in that. And um, this is an amazing thing. I'm amazed no one has done this before because it's the true story of the first racially mixed as venue in New York, opened in 1938, closed in 1949. And everybody played there, opening Night Billy Holiday, for example. Mm. And um, so I made a kind of, uh, you can't quite call it a musical, but it's a music theatre piece using lots of material from the time and some original songs and some dialogue and we story and that, um, that one, uh, sort of gradually built, um, I managed to get a week at the, what was then called the tricycle theater in Kilburn. It's now called the kiln. And we put that in 2012, that week sold out. And that's, a, that's the point where I knew that we had something. Mm. Um, and, uh, then we, we, I did it again in 2014, Leicester square theater. During that time, I managed to interest, uh, a small charitable theater in New York, um, 59 East, East theaters and, and, uh, and, uh, a British promoter is prepared to risk some money because theatre involves a lot of risk. Mm. Um, and uh, he 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 took it over there, and uh, we did end of 2014 into 2015. We did three straight weeks uh, in New York off Broadway, and uh, it was amazing. I had an all-American band. I was MD, MD an all-American band with three fantastic singers. Alan Harris, Sharon A. Wade, who's a superb singer, should be better known here. One of the top jazz singers in the world, in my humble opinion. Cyril Aimé, who's a Franco-American singer, who's quite well known, has done mm-hmm. stuff with Ronnie's. Mm-hmm. And then this amazing band, um, uh, you know, so All-American. Uh, all, all American, uh, And uh, Camille Thurman, a saxophonist and uh, singer, who, again, is making waves. She's now working with Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, Benny Benac, who's uh, a trumpet player. Really cool guys. Um, wonderful female rhythm section, Mimi Jones and Shirazette Tinin. Um, so that was a gas. And what happened with that was New York for a month, had to get all this together. Um, it, it was really, I can't quite believe it all came together as well as it did because, you know, I'm not actually a theatre director. I had a director on hand, um, but I was, you know, really the, the daddy of this production, trying to make everything happen. And you know, there's always stuff that goes wrong and arguments and everything that happened. you have to hold, keep a ship, you know, sailing. Mm. And in fact, it sailed very happily along. And we got, a, we got a rave review from the New York Times in the first week. And the moment that happened, you couldn't get a ticket for Love and Money. Wow, uh, it's amazing. And New York Times is that powerful? Sure. Yeah. And um, it was yeah, it was great. It was a really amazing three weeks. Ultimately, we we could have gone back. I think that following year, but unfortunately, the the producer um, who you know, I'm very grateful for him taking the initial risk. He wasn't actually interested in picking it up again, but he held the rights for another six months. And during that time, the sort of the trail went cold in terms of actually finding space or other people in putting it on. So we slightly lost out there. But the show still exists i'd still do it in in a club version in london from time to time we're doing it again in november at the uh, uh at the hideaway and we did do a run of it in um uh, the theater world Stratford east in 2018 for a couple of weeks and that was pretty good and that had china again this is uh, a young um uh, what's her name uh, judy jackson mm-hmm. uh, uh vim Lareau and the male singers, Kaya Brown, again another great British band in this case. So that that one, I mean, it's got legs. But I, what I need with that is what they call in the West End an angel, which is someone with deep pockets
1: to, to, to put. I wish I could help you.
5: And you know, the other thing, of course, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the West End, of course, is 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 in in you know lockdown, um, and I don't think we're going to see any action there till twenty twenty one. And of course, there'll be a lot of queuing up of productions that mm. have been delayed. So I, you know things don't happen in theatre I mean that's just how it is you get to you get to know that but I hope one day we'll get it back out there Might be
6: the light in the evening Might be the birds coming home Calling me softly Calling me home Everyone's starting to feel it See a way out of the dark to the garden, out to the park. Open the windows. Here comes the summer. Let the sun shine in. Open your heart, Lord. We could be lovers. Let the sun shine in. And you know what they say. The same to the bay, to the bay. Can't wait to sleep on the starlight, feel the grass under my feet. A beautiful day won't you come out to play? I want you to feel the same to the pain to the pain open.
1: is a track that you'll find on Alex's album Call Me Lucky and the vocalist was Cherise Adams-Burnett we'll be hearing again from Alex here in around about 10 minutes time the good news is if you don't yet have Dee Dee Bridgewater's album Afro Blue in your collection it has just been re-released so now is the time to go and buy it recorded originally in Tokyo in 1974 it's an exquisite collaboration of American and Japanese musicians such as Cecil and Ron Bridgewater and Motohiko Hino and from that album we are going to listen to Little B's Poem
4: B. You are all my heart sings for before you came and brought us such joy. How we hoped and prayed that you'd be a boy but a little girl. You are my heart's delight. you make life sunny and bright. Little bee, you are all my heart sings for. Shut up. For you came and brought us such joy How we hoped and prayed that you'd be our boy But little girl, you are my heart's delight You make life sunny and bright Little B, you are all my heart's taste
1: to a track from her Afro Blue album, Little B's Poem. Next to play is more live jazz, this time from Betty Carter.
0: Listen online, on DAB and on smart speakers. Straight ahead with London's leading music venue, The 606 Club.
7: been searching, looking all over town, uh-huh. hoping he can be found. I'm all the loose, and I don't dig it.
1: Carter and tight and talking of live recordings as we go back to our second part of interview with Alex Webb it's another live recording we're going to get going with on that recorded last year at Luton's Bear Club with Alex on the piano and Andy Davis on the trumpet It is the title track from Tony Kofi's album another kind of soul So let's begin talking about some of your projects and i think the first time your name happened Mm -hmm. across my radar was with the call me lucky uh cd which of course Mm -hmm. was the copacetic foundation and uh, Mm -hmm. could you just talk to us a little bit about the copacetic foundation what it is and why you first set it up
5: yeah well what it was is in 2013 i thought it would be useful to have uh, an organization with its own bank account which might help me uh, with bits of fundraising and stuff like that and i thought well i'll do this properly we'll have it's, it, legally it's called an unincorporated association, but it means you have like, a board of officers and you have accounts and you have to have an AGM and you have to do all the things that a little company would. And um, so we've done that ever since 2013 and it's been a useful vehicle for bits of fundraising. And it basically, and it's, uh, it, it, it means it's, it's just a kind of, if, a kind of collective, if you like, that uh, is something I can build around. And uh, they always, you know, I call it copacetic productions. Copacetic was a word that I believe Billy Strayhorn came up with for a kind of social club in New York in the 5th
1: I'd always wondered. And it
5: also is like a word for something that's really good. Yeah, so um, there you go. So that's that's all it is in a way. It's a kind of vehicle for stuff that I want to do. Um, or it could be stuff that other people want to do. I mean, you know, I'd always be happy to sit down with people and, and share projects. I mean, I did. A, we've done lots of collaborations. Uh, one of the things we did a, a couple of years ago was uh, co-produced uh, a musical that I uh, co-created uh, about Lena, Lena Horn with an amazing, talented actress, singer, songwriter, uh, playwright called uh, Camilla, Camilla Beeper. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And she's she's off having kids, but she'll uh, she'll be back on the scene. And I hope we're going to revive that show at some point. Um, so that's the Copacetic Foundation. That's all it is, really. But it's a it's a what it, what it vehicle for me to try and make things happen. Um, going back to Call Me Lucky, you know, that that was it's um, uh, something that um, I, I had it fun. If that was my bit of money I made in New York, I thought oh, I'll make an album. And uh, I didn't know what to do, whether to make, you know, all my favorite standards. I didn't know whether to just pick a couple of. And uh, it was actually Joe Harrop, bless her, said, why don't you record all your songs? You know, because I had lots of songs sitting around. And um, then I thought, well, why don't I just get everyone that I've worked with, you know, do a track each kind of thing. And a couple of them did, too. Mm. And we ended up with this amazing uh, bunch of singers. I mean... Um, you know the Cherise Burnett. Uh, that was probably her first recording session. She's now won two awards this year. Um, we had uh, we had what else did we have? We had Alan Harris from New York, you know, China we had Wimler, um We had Al- Alexander Stewart, David McCamwell, That's when I first got together with him to record. Um, and that's a, a track I'm very proud of. Me and my crazy ideas. Great, book, of course. So it's, um, I, I, the only thing I'd say about Call Me Lucky, I think it's a good album. I thought it would make, a, get a bit more attention simply because it's such an odd thing to have so many great jazz singers Artists, on one album. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and I, I thought that would be a real, yeah. I thought it would be a real selling point, you know, but it, it um, I don't know, maybe maybe it actually made the album a bit coherent, you know, maybe that what people are looking for is something that's got a more of a sort of shape to it. Um, that's the only thing that crossed my mind. That was the, the other thing was that um, I got um, Leanne Carroll to, to do a tune of mine. And Leanne is probably the most amazing musician I've ever worked with. I can still remember. Because she, she knew that I'd sent her the song and she listened to it, but she hadn't really learned it. <laughs> so we went to the studio, we were sort of doing it line by line. You know. And yet, if you listen to that vocal, it's absolutely staggeringly amazing. And she, it's this instant thing that she has as a vocal artist of putting a stamp on material, knowing exactly how to phrase it, what level of emotion to put it in it, build it. Um, And uh, it was a total lesson in professionalism. I absolutely, you know, she's a jewel. I mean, she ought to be world famous, Leanne Carroll. But there you go, you know.
1: Just one of the other great names that you've worked with. And talking of great names that you've worked with, Tony Kofi was on our series uh, back, I think, in about April. And, of course, you work regularly and you've got another collaboration with Tony, haven't you? Just tell us a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, well, Tony and I, well, what happened was uh, Tony started doing stuff with me in my productions, like being one of the saxophonists in Cafe Society Swing. Then we got, Joe and I got him involved in the Peggy Lee Show, um, which is, is really important because it, it, Tony's such a strong improviser and such a powerful presence, musical presence. I think it's one of the things that stops the Peggy Lee Show just being a, a nostalgia exercise. It gives it a kind of energy, you know, which is really good. Um, and uh, then um, I think I suggested him to John, you know, why don't we do? I, actually, I wasn't sure if I knew he was a fan of Cannibal Adley, but I certainly was. And, you know, have we thought about doing something about Cannibal? And he turns out he's a manic Cannibal Adley fan. Mm. Um, and uh, so we started talking about it. And I said, look, why don't we do this together? You know, um, I, I don't mind writing the arrangements. And and he said, yeah, I know there's there's a drama. I'd like to get involved. And blah, blah, blah. and um, you know, and then I actually raised uh, some money from the Arts Council, bless them, about £5,000, really, to pay for some arranging and transcribing and stuff and also to rehearse the band properly and mm-hmm. subsidise the first few gigs. And um, that was really, you know, it's, it just shows you know, a little bit of seed corn money like that can really make a project come to life. Absolutely. And, but, and Tony and I were very anxious that it was a, was, wasn't a pickup band, it was going to be a permanent band, and we'd be properly rehearsed and be tight like the Cannibal Ladderley bands always were. So we had um, the great Byron Wallen on trumpet we had Another master musician, Andrew Kleinder on bass, bass yeah. Um, and yeah, Alfonso Vitali, a young drummer, Italian guy on drums, and that was the band, and that's how we started. And I mean, it, was, it scared the hell out of me because those guys were so amazing. Um, but um, then what happened was that Byron, who, who who's another fantastic musician, he he was and is so busy with other projects, we found that was getting to be difficult. Um, so we got Andy Davis from who runs Ronnie Scott's Jam Session, mm-hmm. fantastic musician again, and. A, a really funny and lovable guy so he he's now the regular trumpet player if he can't make it then we call byron yeah but um so that that one's uh, t- really it's it was really taking off on the on the, the club circuit because you know you've got the name recognition of, of cannibal and you've got the quality of everything that tony does mm. and all of, all those guys you know and i it's not it's not false humility to say that i'm very lucky to play with people at that level you know and and uh You know, really, I really had to get my chops together because, you know, those scary tempos and all that, that that music has a a very specific vocabulary and uh, idiom. You know, it's got to be, it's got to sound right. You know, that's not, you can't just sort of, uh, you can't fake it. You know, you you listen to those records, they're very powerfully idiomatic. They've got that real hard bop bluesy Thing going on, um, and you got to try and sound like that. Um and of course, Cannibal had the most amazing roll call of piano players. the Piano players that went into his band was Hank Jones, Bobby Timmons, Bill Evans, uh, Wynton Kelly, uh, v- Victor Feldman, and Joe Arvinell, George Duke, uh, and Hal Galper. I mean, I, there may be some, but it's like the roll call of the best piano players yeah. ever lived.
1: <laughs> yeah, possibly just missing so, Herbie, so, but apart from that, everyone's there.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, the one who's a revelation actually is Victor Feldman. I mean, I knew I knew a bit about him. Um, what an amazing piano player, absolutely incredible. You know that apparently Miles wanted him to go with the band, with his band, but he, he, he was paid too much for his studio work he did and stuff. So he got Hobie Hancock instead. <laughs> so that worked out right for, for Miles. But, 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 but Victor was at that level. Like Miles wanted sure. to play with him, you know, which is sure. kind of interesting. And he's, and he's British. He's one of ours. You know. and, um, uh, so anyway, that's the, the Cannibal Project. But, uh, go on, sorry.
1: No, I was going to talk about yet another one of your projects. And we mentioned a name a little bit earlier on. The and Web. That's another one of your projects, The Last Bohemians. Where did that come from? This is another one of your ideas. You're an ideas well, man, want, aren't you?
5: Um, well, I'm a chancer, some would say. Uh, <laughs> d- d- just to finish off the Cannibal thing, um, Ma- Malcolm Mills of uh, Proper Proper Distribution and the Last Music Company is a friend of Tony's, released records of his in the past. He got very excited by the Cannibal project and he's, he kind of made a live album, he recorded The Bear Club, uh, which is a great album yes, yeah, and it's it. on vinyl mainly. And um, or, yeah, or, or you can stream it. And Tony's on great form there, you know I mean? And that gives a flavour of that band. And mm. we hope people will, well, hope what will happen is that we can get out there and play that again and sell those albums on gigs, which is really where you have to sell albums these days. Of course. Yeah. So um, that, that that's something that we want to get back to doing. Uh, Last Bohemians, yeah, well, so after um, getting David in to record that track on Call Me Lucky, um, he and I had another project, which is, well, it's still going, it would be still going if it wasn't for the lockdown, which was uh, the music of Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. And again, this is, you know, that, there's lots of people out there doing tribute shows. So when I, and I'm, I'm uneasy about it in some ways because it, you know, it's slightly pimping off the past. So I always try to, do, to think what can I bring to this that makes it different? Well, first of all, David is a man. And uh, so that, that having a male Billie Holiday, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. that's a kind of interesting angle itself. And I wasn't sure it would work actually, but of course it does because he's an astonishing artist. Uh, interestingly, he sings everything in Billie's keys, you know, because yeah. he's got that high register. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so um, we started, and then I, I hit on this idea, um, and uh, rather than just you know, like a tribute to Billie Holiday, there was a concert that she did, which was a words and music event. And it's when she launched her book, Lady Sings the Blues in 1956, she actually uh, did a concert at Carnegie Hall with extracts from the book read by a new york times journalist so it was a kind of mixed media event that she did you know Mm -hmm. and i thought why don't we base it on that and there's an album actually of that show and you hear some of the extracts of the book and you hear the stuff she sang at the time and um i said let's let's literally let's do that that night you know and we we kind of did we added a few tunes that she didn't do that we wanted to do and stuff like that but basically It's based on that idea. And we start with some of the extracts of uh, the book that she read. And then David starts to turn to a show where he talks about his relationship with Bill Holiday, And that actually has become a really interesting part of this. And this show really works. And we have a... Band. The other thing about it is, is uh, the band, uh, generally speaking, is racially mixed and it's gender balanced. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you can't always do that because it depends on the availability of musicians. We've always had women involved in that band, some great musicians, uh, Sue Richardson on trumpet, mm-hmm. Flo Moore on bass, Sophie Alloway on drums, was a ridiculous drummer. And... Um, so there's something that in every way, it's like it's turning some expectations on their heads, you know, that here's a male Billy. The band is maybe looks a bit different than we'd expect. And we're actually basing it on some words and music things that Billy did herself. And then there's uh, David's angle on everything. It's, uh, we feel a show that's really worked as a almost like a theatrical experience, but also, of course, has to work as music. And, and i think that david really carries that off
1: referencing you were talking about the way that you expect a female to be able to carry the pain of a song with david carrying billy's songbook how does he translate because billy probably most famously of all of the stellar female singers is noted for her pain how does he manage to carry that
5: off right good point and it's um i'll tell you something about uh, there's some billy songs there's a couple of famous ones Ain't know business if i do and my man which are the sexual politics are very dubious um and uh, you could get away with that in the thirties and forties because people didn't really question that. But when you have uh, lines like uh, "I won't tell a copper if I'm beat up by my papa," which is on one of those songs, now I would never, I wouldn't be prepared to hear a female sing that now. Mm-hmm. With with David doing it, it creates uh, his gender creates a kind of uh, distance, mm-hmm. oh. I think, with this sentiment. Well, at least I I hope it does mm-hmm. because he wants he, he does want to sing those lines as Billy did, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same thing as a woman singing. I would be very uncomfortable with that mm. in this day and age. Mm. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting point that, that you've raised. Some of the other stuff, I mean, is, it's, you know, a song that she wrote the lyrics of, one of the great songs of the 20th century, Don't Explain. Now that's a, that's a heartbreak song mm. that, um, you know, that, that can work for a man or a woman. Really. You know, it's just a great heartbreak song and uh, no one, no one's ever said it better, I guess, you know, so some of this stuff, it just works because David can give it the right um, emotional gravitas anyway, you know, Um, So, you know, but I mean, uh, it's a really interesting point. Uh, We're talking about um, the the sexual politics has changed. Thank God, you know, a lot. And some of this stuff doesn't age well, you know, and and I think people should think about that when they sing these songs. Mm -hmm. And
1: if we now come forward to March of 2020, when suddenly the lockdown happened, how, I mean, clearly it's affected your life. I'm taking it, you probably had a lot in the diary and you've already referenced that you think theatres might not be up until 2021. How are you feeling? I mean, what are you doing with your time creatively and where do you expect to be gigging again? <laughs> I mean, hopefully later this year.
5: So, well, let's just just wind back a little because one of the things that I had up was a load of dates for The Last Bohemians, which only came out in November. Which is the record with David McCalmont mm. and uh, a load of dates for um, another control, which is the record with Tony Kofi that mm. we set up a load of dates for. So this just got blown out of the water, and it's not—it's not only the frustration of not playing. We—we—that's uh, really the main place you sell records now is mm. on gigs. That's of where course. people are prepared to pay full price for record, and we—you know—wait we, on. We sign them when we talk to the people and all that, and it's—it's it's a fun thing to do. Um, so that's a real blow, and and setting up those gigs was not easy, and there was a million other gigs as well. Mm. So um, it's been really bad uh, for the scene. Uh, I mean, Tony, Tony, D- David's got other things going on. He's made another record uh, with Hi-Fi Sean since then. Um, what you might loosely call a pop record, uh, uh, but I mean that sense, you know. And uh, everything David does is interesting, but he can't really do much with that record <laughs> either at the moment. You know, it's it's just a real break on everything. Um, so, so you, you know, what have I done? Um, I've had to try to re- reprogram all those dates into the autumn. Some of them now being pushed back into next year. But I'm hoping that maybe in October, November, we actually will be out there again. Um, but who knows? I think we've got to see how this next month goes with the reopening of uh, pubs and restaurants. I think that's going to be a really critical thing. And if we can if we can get away with that, you know, I hope with without uh, a second wave mm-hmm. uh, of the seas, then things can start to move uh, forward a little bit. But we nobody really knows what's going on or how it's going to play out. And um, it's so here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, you know, it's. um. There's, there's money, you know. There's money issues. Well, I managed to get a bit of money from a couple of gr- hardship grants are out there. Uh, I was owed some money from some university teaching, which came through late, which actually was quite fortunate. My wife's back working, so we, we're going to be all right. We're going to get through. I know mm-hmm. that now. I was worried at one point. We're going to get through. But um, you know, and the other thing I have noticed: if you're locked down, you don't spend any money. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one good thing about it, you know, all we do is there's just food, you know, yep. and little bills. But apart from that, you don't don't spend any money. So um, so there is that. So I think we're going to survive. But, but then, in terms of artistically, um, well, there's several things. One is, especially if you're tr- trying to play the kind of music that Tony and I play, you have to be playing it. You know, the brain slows down if you're not playing that music. Uh, you have, you should be playing it several times a week, minimum. Yeah. You know, mm. now I've been practicing pretty much every day, but that's not the same as as when you got Andrew Kleiner next to you playing. You know, nineteenth to the dozen, and you've got to try and keep up with it. And it, it's um, so that is a real issue. And but I wonder how we're all going to play when we get back together again. So there's that. There's there's, um, the the sort of sense of losing touch with the audience and the sort of, you know, being on your own. I mean, I'm a songwriter, arranger, and I've made a point of of writing new songs and revising old songs, writing some arrangements. But, you you know, like I said to you earlier, I'm losing a bit of energy at the moment because Mm -hmm. it's just been so long. Um, and, uh, you just got to keep hacking away, I guess. I've been doing lots of reading and I'm riding my bike a lot and trying to keep fit and all that kind of stuff. I've been growing vegetables in the garden, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff, you know, um, but, um, no, it's tough. And I mean, I, uh, I, I, I'm lucky I've got a reasonable sized house with a little garden. Um, but some people are stuck in a tower block or something, mm-hmm. you know, they've it's been, they've been prisoners really for a long time. It's loosening up now, but, um, it must've been incredibly bad for some people. Um, so I, I mean, I do count my blessings and that.
1: No, exactly. I think, you know, luckily, as you say, the, the lockdown is easing. And, and as you, the point you've made, let's just hope it's successful. People are reasonably mature about how they approach the easing of lockdown and that we can begin to get back to to live gigs because that's the one part of the jigsaw that's still to this day missing. And, and as we record this, I know that there's been a, a big grant for the arts, but uh, still theatres are shut down. You can mm. open a theatre. You just can't actually have a production, as I understand. It. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And of course, we haven't mentioned your website either, which is well worth a visit.
5: Um, well, there's, the, there's my website, alexwebsongwriter, one word, dot com. Please visit. And then there's the Cobasetic Foundation, which is org, mm-hmm. And that's also worth a visit. Where All the projects we've talked about, you can see a bit of them. You can see some YouTube clips and all that kind of stuff. And do do have a look, you know. I mean, um, yeah. Just just to say, I mean, the I, I feel we were very unlucky with those albums, David's album and Tony's album that they, they just came out before lockdown. Um, they all they got great reviews and stuff, mm-hmm. and I hope I hope somehow we can kind of give them another lease of life at some point. I I was really proud of what we did with David. Um, that uh, again, that that the studio band included Tony Kofi and, and Andy Davis. Um, it was produced by Andrew Klein. That's all a bit incestuous, I know, but there's there's people that I know really, you know, they know their stuff and, um. The thing with David's thing, what I like about that record, I wrote some stuff for him. We co-wrote a couple, and then the rest of it is uh, jazz arrangements of popular tunes, but they're not from the standards era. So we've got an REM tune. We've got, um, uh, you know, what, what else have we got? Um, we've got? We've even got a, a Beatles tune. We got, but everything sort of really, uh, what I've really tried to do is make the arrangements sound like they were originally jazz tunes that happened to be covered by pop bands. You know, that, that's what you should yeah, yeah. be able, you know, that's what I'm trying to go for, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, I've got a radio head tune, you know, things like that. And I think those have come off pretty well. And certainly the album has been really well received and the reviewers loved it, you know, um, but uh, it's not the easiest time for physical product. And I think we'll find in due course, we've, we've streamed a lot of it. But of course, the, the, you know, that doesn't pay well. No, so no. I, think, I think we're increasingly in, 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 the, in the realm of, you know, if you can, over time, you can get an album to pay for itself. That's probably about as good as you're going to get, you know, unless you're obviously, you know, in the charts or something. Um, it, and, and I think so. I think you just have to see them as sort of documents of your musical progress and a kind of calling card and just be realistic about it.
1: Mm. And of course, as you mentioned, it's live gigs where the majority of the album's Get sold, and that's where the self funding comes from. So, in yes. all manner of respects, musicians really need live gigs to be back so we can only hope out i've been to a couple of your gigs and the the energy you bring to this stage is amazing so i can't wait to see you playing again and just being a live environment with jazz music in front of me i can't wait
5: no me too I, I i you know and it's also it's the hang as some musicians have pointed out it's the beer afterwards you know which is a... <laughs>
1: it's funny at the end of every interview that always comes up <laughs> So, Alex, many thanks indeed for your time. It's been wonderful uh, talking with you. We're going to be playing plenty of your music and projects throughout this show, and we have supported the albums over the course of time as well, but great to get you on the show finally. I hope that your life gets back to some normality and I can come and shake your hand at the hang after a gig sometime soon.
5: Oh, you'll be very welcome, and thank you for your appreciation. It's been nice talking to you.
1: Alex, always a pleasure. Many thanks indeed. Cheers, then. Bye-bye. Did I ever
3: tell you You're the one who makes the sun rise You're the one who makes the birds fly Did I ever tell you How you brought up all my tears How you kissed away my fears But I know somehow It's too late now These are the words I never spoke mm-hmm. You understand me And all the colors of my pain And how to bring love home again You understand What it takes to heal the scars On a journey to the stars But I know somehow It's too late now These are the lines I never wrote Something to make sense And now I find I'm talking In the past tense Would you believe I said Some things I never meant Such a silly argument Would you believe Is the greatest thing, and love can conquer everything. Now, all I can give you, now, all I have left is all the hopes I dare to hope, and all the lines I never wrote, and all the words. I dare to hold All the lines I never wrote And all the words I never spoke mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And during the interview with Alex, you'll have heard him talking about how he respects the vocalist the Leanne Carroll, and that was her we just listened to there with words I never spoke. We're going to go back to 1962 now and listen to a track from Dexter Gordon's Go album. Straight Ahead
0: with David Lewis.
1: Billy Higgins on the drums and Sonny Clark on the piano. That was Dexter Gordon and Love for Sale. So how do you spend your weekends? Well, the great news is you can now spend them with us virtually at least every Friday and Saturday evening in glorious HD and in great audio quality too. We stream live from the club and to enjoy that, it's super simple. Go to 606club.co.uk, create yourself a free account and then every week as the artists get announced, you pay a very small fee and you can once again enjoy live jazz from the six. Coming on now with a Stevie Wonder song that's becoming somewhat of a jazz standard for enough, and it is Overjoyed from Kurt Elling.
8: Over time, I've been building my castle of love Just for two Though you never knew you were my reason much too far for you now to say that I've got to throw my castle away over dreams I have planned out a fairy tale come true though you never knew it was of you I have been skiing Now the Sandman has come From far too far away For you not to say Come back some other day And though you don't believe That they do They do come true For all my dreams Came true when I looked at you Maybe, two, if you would believe, you, too, might be overjoyed. Own, just to find what I try to discover I've come much too far for me now to find The love that i found will never more be mine And though you don't believe that they do They do come true for all my dreams i looked at you and maybe do if you would believe you too might be overjoyed Love is.
1: Pereth and Overjoyed. So just going back to Alex's album from 2015, Call Me Lucky, it featured a number of vocalists on there. We've already heard Leanne Carroll. Well, one of the other vocalists is Joe Harrop, who of course co-presents the show with me once a month. We'll be back together in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, let's listen to the rather sultry end of the affair.
9: The camera sees the light. got's diesel
10: you're doing, love Who you trying to keep I ain't gonna be the one You're bound to be with But Jack If it's easy can lay my body down Yeah Tell me I'm your baby And just Check right out Of town I'm gonna Jack I'm gonna fool you I'm gonna look you Between the eyes Till your eye ain't no Trying to fool Gonna lay my gavelin down Claim Exclusionary rule But see, Jack Nobody's perfect But we're perfectly alive had a woman not done had the time love but see Jack if there's one thing you ought to open up your eyes and see that I ain't no man Turn it all around I can put my lead On Sunday For when there's happiness Abound But for the moment For the hour I am leaving you You ain't mine Part for the course That's just fine Cause no matter how you slice it You done made your better lies And see Jack I ain't no
1: that complement one another perfectly. Joe Harrop, first of all with End of the Affair and from the album Currency of the Man, that was Melody Gardo, a No Man's Prize. Many thanks indeed to Alex for being our guest this week. Next week we have UK saxophonist Camilla George with us. And to play out on the show this week we're going back to 1958, the album Porgy and Best with Paul Chambers on bass, Philly Joe Jones on the drums, this is Miles Davis and my man's gone now. Many thanks indeed for your company over the last couple of hours and I'll be back with you next week for more Straight Ahead.